This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publication. Uh, welcome, everyone. And I'm very excited about the guest of today's episode. So we have Dr. Garrett Wiltshire, who is a social scientist and a lecturer at Loughborough University. Garrett has received his PhD from Loughborough University in 2014. And since then, he has worked as a lecturer in three different universities in the UK before coming back to Loughborough in September this year. Um, he has broad research interests related to social determinants of health. And he has, for example, written about the park run in the UK and is also researching exercise and health for organ transplant recipients. However, um, what we are covering to the, uh, in today's episode is going to be his work related to qualitative research methodology. So welcome, Gareth. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So um, as a little bit of background, so I read your paper, A Case for Critical Realism in the Pursuit of Interdisciplinary and Impact. When it was published, that was uh, around 2018. When was it out? In the spring or summer, right? Uh, yeah, I think it was in the, in the spring that year, yeah. Yeah, so I remember reading your paper and I was very excited that somebody is doing this work also in the field of sport, ex uh, exercise and physical activity. And so since then, we actually met each other in a conference in Vancouver, the That's quality right. research in sport and exercise conference in the summer 2018. And we actually collaborated in a couple of projects after that. So I do know a little bit about your research, yeah, uh, probably more than the listeners today. Yeah. Um, so would you just first tell us a little bit about that paper, the case for critical realism, uh, how this paper came into being and, and what are you arguing for in this paper? Yeah, so um, that, I suppose, was my first attempt to, to, to do a single authored paper. Um, you know, I'm an early career researcher and, and I, I kind of uh, wanted to, to, to write something um, on my own and, 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 uh, to, it was, it was really to, to choose to do that was, was really, um, an attempt to get out, put into words and, and to develop some ideas on something that had been, um, uh, quite interesting to me for, for, for several years. But it was one of those things which, which I felt like I hadn't uh, really read enough about in the field. I felt like it was something that, um, not, I, I didn't hear about the, the ideas and arguments coming from many of my colleagues, for example. And I wanted to have these conversations with fellow qualitative researchers. Um, and I'd, you know, go through the textbooks, go through the published papers debating these issues. And I didn't really see much about, uh, critical realism or, or when it was mentioned, it was kind of mentioned in passing without much sort of, um, thorough debate. Um, so, I suppose I, I wanted to write about critical realism, which is my kind of core motivation. Um, but of course, just writing about critical realism for, for the sake of it is sort of pointless because those 
um, the, the information is already out there in, in different fields and, and the key authors who have developed the approach. Um, I, I've already done that stuff. So I wanted to link it to, you know, why do I really find it uh, important? What's the kind of the core things about this approach, which, which I, um, uh, which I think it uh, brings value to, to my own thinking and my own work. And I decided to, to, to link it with the ideas of interdisciplinarity. So working mm-hmm. across disciplines in, in academia and impact. And um, these, are, these are two things that are being pushed for, uh, I think, in academia in, in general and certainly uh, in the UK in the context where I'm working. Um, but I, I don't think that, um, that we necessarily have the, the, the tools or the, um, or sometimes even the kind of uh, the, the motivation and the shared assumptions which actually encourage uh, interdisciplinary work. And neither do we necessarily work on um, uh, things that, that have impact at their, at their core as, as, their, as one of their sort of primary, um, uh, primary components. So for me, those two things are, um, are, are things which have been sort of focused um, through my work on my um, thinking with critical realism. So that's, that's the kind of key motivation behind right. it. Yeah. So if we think of physical activity and exercise research, we often see that things are kind of ton, uh, done in their own pockets. So you have the qualitative researchers doing their own work and then you have like, physiological approaches and then you have uh, as if psychology and sociology would be doing kind of their own uh, own approaches and, and almost as if their own topics as well. So exactly. in terms of in terms of interdisciplinarity, why why do you see critical realism as something that might help us to develop these dialogues? Well, I suppose along with the types of things that people study within different disciplines, uh, there's also ways of studying within different disciplines. Um, and it's and it's really the focus on those different the ways that different disciplines um, have developed that was that was the focus of this. Um, and I suspect that this is a, you know a largely a, a social process which happens where people are socialized into different disciplines and there are certain norms which um, which become um, the, the the taken for granted ways of doing things in different disciplines. Um, and in, in my experience, um, I suppose I read most closely sociology and I'd kind of go to conferences and um, talk to PhD students and um, lecturers and kind of read what everyone was doing. And the, the norm for me was, was certainly one that is around um, qualitative methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and um and to, to the extent that I remember going to a, a, a conference once and, 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 and someone sort of standing up and they were defending, um, they got, um, they were trying to, to, to present some survey work they'd done. And there was a critical comment about the use of survey work within the social sciences. And they, they kind of held their hand up and said, um, look, this, this wasn't my part of the study. I, I'm a sociologist. I, 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 I use qualitative methods i'm a sociologist i, I don't i don't use surveys mm-hmm. um so, so that was you know a, a, an example of of the, the norms within w- within that which uh, kind of assumed that, that that qualitative methods are the um the way of doing things now of, of course there's there's 
lots of sociologists who have used um, quantitative methods and do continue to use quantitative methods. Um, but in the area, in the field that I was working, that, that there's a certain, certainly a, an assumption that that was um, not the way to do things. And people who did use quantitative methods, um, I certainly got the sense were seen as the people who were um, who maybe sold out or the people who were a little bit naive or closed minded or too kind of uh, objectivist, not not open minded enough. Um, to, to see the world in qualitative ways. Um, so uh, for me, there's lots of differences between different uh, disciplines, but t- coming at it from my perspective and coming at it from my own kind of um, biography growing um, and uh, and learning about this stuff, it certainly was that um, was that, that was the norm. And um, so for me, the, 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 there are probably lots of good reasons for this. Um, but for me, I kind of wanted to push back on that a little bit, and I wanted to kind of question that um, that uh, assumption, and, and and that I saw as a bit of a um, a barrier to me. So if I, for example, in that context, would have wanted to do a survey, I would have been sort of slowly and and, and subtly um, persuaded that it's not the not the right way to go. And that's just one little example, but there's probably lots of other different examples which kind of build up in your head. And you begin to build a framework and uh, an architecture around your conceptual thinking around, uh, around what it is to do research in your field. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, a, a lot of this was um, w- w- was related to this disciplinary uh, approach and, and something which I've um, come to see as, as quite problematic. Right. And yeah, when you are talking about qualitative researchers and they kind of clearly think some of them think that this is the right way of doing research and this is the best way of doing research. So uh, that's something that comes across as in some of the literature that there is such thing as the qualitative paradigm, which has its own assumptions and its own ways of working and own own ways of thinking about research in itself. And uh, that's something that you're also challenging in your paper kind of this idea that qualitative research would be one paradigm of its own. So that's, r- that's right, yeah. Um, and, and it's an interesting one because, uh, as I said, I, I'm, I'm taking this from, from my own perspective and my own experience, but it, it's quite possible that the, the opposite happens in, in, for, for other people. You know, there might be um, people in, in disciplines where statistics and, um, uh, statistics and quantitative ways of working and experimental designs are very much the, the the norm and someone who might want to do something more qualitative might equally be kind of um socialized out of it and and and, and told that it's it's not it's not a good idea to do that so that, that probably does happen on, on 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 different sides so it's important to mention that but certainly for me um as i was describing that uh, the the experience in, in in social science in sport um much of this was um labeled as as being in this qualitative paradigm and this is you know a, a contested term i think not everyone fully subscribes to to this but but it's it's one of those things which you do hear quite a lot um and so this this way of a, a, approaching research for me is underpinned by um uh 
often people talk about relativist notions of truth. So um, that people you can you can quote people by saying um, qualitative research, researchers believe not in one truth but multiple truths. Um, mm-hmm. People talk about um, multiple uh, internal realities, mind-dependent realities. Um, people will use the labels constructivism and interpretivism quite a lot. Um, and crucially, uh, even the label of the qualitative paradigm um, puts it in opposition with um, quantitative research methods. So it, it, it begins to create uh, an assumption that qualitative and quantitative methods are somehow incompatible. They do not live in the same world. They shouldn't be used at the same time. They shouldn't be used by the same um, under the same um, research assumptions or philosophical assumptions of the researcher. Um, mm. So you have to be either or. Yes. That, uh, yeah. that you have a strong identity as I'm a qualitative researcher, or I'm a quantitative researcher, and that's that's who you are. That's what you believe in. Absolutely. I think I think that's something which which does happen. Um, and I'm not sure in what field that, that happens in more than others but certainly in my field there there is a sense that and there's a tendency to also use things like um uh, people people might say uh, qualitative with a big q um and qualitative with a with a small q i've heard that uh, used quite a lot recently so the idea that there are people can do qualitative research but there's even within that there's um uh, there's proper qualitative researchers who are using the qualitative with a big q and uh, not Qualitative researchers, but they're not properly doing it, um, which is qualitative with a with a small q. So um, yeah, I, I suspect there people do start to identify with these methods, and they do start to position themselves within academia in alignment with with these um, particular methods. Um, it's attached to a worldview um, and a basic belief system, fundamental belief system, which is um, which people often refer to. And um, the other thing which is probably worth thinking about within this um, space is that um, there's a there's a there's a history in um, in academia of qualitative methods perhaps not being taken as seriously as quantitative methods. You know, it's not sort of proper science, and there's there's an undercurrent of politics related to maybe getting qualitative methods taken more seriously in academia. So I think yeah, if, absolutely. If you, if you mm. talk about you know, identity and people wanting to build a position and build an, an argument for um, qualitative methods, I can easily see how um, your identity may become a, a bit stronger if, if, if it's not taken seriously by, by other people and you, and you don't get published in certain journals. There's, there's lots of journals that don't really accept um, qualitative methods. Um, so I, I, I can see how that um, can really um, start to magnify differences or potentially exaggerate differences uh, between these mm. methods. Yeah, and I think for qualitative researchers, when their work is being rejected, then you often easily get a bit defensive and then you are kind of working to show how the quantitative researchers are reductionist and they don't understand the complexity of this issue and and kind of all sorts of things that you can kind of make this polar opposites of we are more sophisticated with our methods and with our philosophy and with our ways of thinking so yeah, I think it's I, part part of this 
kind of always having to defend that it's proper research, even if I had only 10 participants as opposed mm. to mm, having a big sample and, and so forth. Yeah, exactly. I think the sample size is something which is people come back to quite often. And perhaps also the idea that, um, you know, this, this might, people may disagree with this, but it potentially um, qualitative methods is, uh, is easy to do. So for example, having a conversation with someone and trying to um, understand their experience is something that mm. most people do on a daily basis. Mm. Um, and people are quite skilled in, in doing that and, and observing other people and maybe reading a book and, and, and trying to interpret what the author was, was thinking. These are all interpretive acts, which we, uh, we're, you know, human brains are very uh, well equipped to, to do. Um, so it's almost that, um, it's almost t t too easy to, to do. Um, yeah. in, in comparison to a qualitative method, methods, which, you know, is, is maybe more, um, sorry, quantitative methods where you have to maybe go through a course and you taught at university. So it's, so it's got an, an air of being more, um, kind of advanced and, 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 and proper. Um, yeah. which, which of course has no relation to, um, whether it's actually useful or not, but it, it, it may be more difficult to do, but, you know, less, less useful for example but but actually the the, the fact that it's, it's difficult to do may bring a certain level of um kudos to it in in, in, the, in the same way that qualitative mm -hmm. methods may not yeah yeah I, I get the point that you just go and talk to people and then you report what they've said mm. and or that's the impression that you might get if you haven't kind of been involved in qualitative research and and how complicated it actually can be yeah yeah exactly so i'm just kind of saying that maybe maybe all this kind of builds builds into this thing which we are talking about which is a a qualitative paradigm and and, and how it comes to be something which which needs to be defended and something which needs which people can get very um uh can people begin to identify with very strongly yeah this podcast is sponsored by fibian Fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform. It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. So, I mean, you already mentioned about that kind of in qualitative research, we often talk about relativism, we often talk about constructivism. There are different approaches. We could talk about critical approaches. Um, postmodern, post-structuralist approaches and so forth. And I guess one of the most challenging things for a qualitative researcher, especially in the early career phase, is to kind of figure out how you position yourself with, with so many different approaches and, and kind of different ways of conceptualizing qualitative research and what we're trying to do as well. So... I guess just kind of your own reflections on your own journey and how you were socialized in qualitative research in the first place and how you started 
shifting away from that. I think that might be useful for some of the listeners who might be now developing their own own approach and kind of figuring out where they sit in terms of these paradigms and these approaches. Yeah, well, um, as I, I guess I've already touched on uh, slightly, that I, I suppose I began my my journey, and I suppose we can go back to probably not undergraduate um, because that, that's probably not as not not as relevant. Although it's worth mentioning that at undergraduate the courses that um, I'm familiar with across a few different universities. You do tend to get taught in a way which, which maybe first year you're exposed to both uh, qualitative and quantitative methods. But soon when you start to get into your second year, certainly third year, the cohort of students does split um, between uh, quantitative on the one hand and quantitative methods on the other hand. So, um, you know, I, I went down the qualitative route because I was studying uh, sociology, a bit of uh, philosophy, um, and, and uh, it was it was generally it was a coaching science course uh, in sports coaching at Cardiff Met University. Um, but I suppose as I got more into thinking in a more advanced way as, as a researcher, I suppose that was my, my master's, uh, and I was certainly uh, taught this stuff that we're talking about around the qualitative paradigm um and then into my into my phd i was certainly along that that line as well i remember uh it's 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 hard to 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 think back but i do distinctly remember in my interview for my for my phd um where i remember declaring that i was methodologically i was an anti-realist um, and I was, uh, I was, I was part of this qualitative paradigm. It was part of, you know, w- one of those things that I'd, I'd, I'd um, been, been taught and, and, and uh, a way to approach things. Um, so then, um, I know that by the end of my first year, um, at, as a PhD student, I was not an anti-realist and I was beginning to read more. So, so, so somewhere in between the interview for my PhD and the end of my first year, um, I be- became or, or, or was much more convinced by um, by critical realism. Um, so looking right. back, I mean, what, what happened in that in that first year? I, I think the way that I um, like to to learn things is to 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 try and do um, I try and do a lot of thinking on my own. Um, I try and sort of write notes and and, and jot things down, and if things don't really um, fit with me. I I I prefer not to sort of rote learn something and then kind of um just 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 uh, talk about the way talk about things in that they've been written about and kind of just quote other people i really need to try and make sure i understand it myself so i remember reading of the um the justifications around why qualitative methods um is grounded in philosophical assumptions and they made so i was trying to work it out myself trying to understand it and they didn't really fit with me they didn't seem to make too much sense i came across a paper by um, mike weed um in i I think the journal is the qualitative research in sport and exercise um and uh that paper was around grounded theory um, and in within that uh, critical realism was introduced um to me and uh at the same time there was a lecturer at uh at loughborough um is Professor Paul Downward. He's written about uh, critical realism. Um, so I kind of remember 
going down a little bit of a rabbit hole and, and, and wanting to learn a little bit more about this. And, and it was one of those um, things where I just felt like it, it made much more sense to me. And, you know, is that, is that feeling where you're kind of, um, you're, 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 you're opening the door to something and, 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 and it becomes, you open it further and further and you see there's a, there's, there's a kind of big world out there of people who are writing about critical realism. Um, and I, I wanted to explore that further. And, um, yeah, since then, I suppose I've, um, I've been writing about it, talking about it, um, more and, um, coming across other people who have, who have gone through a, a similar journey. I'm learning a, a, a lot from plenty of other people about it as well. So, um, I suppose that was, that was my journey. So I, was, I saw, certainly went from the kind of interpretivist, uh, qualitative paradigm side of things to a uh, critical realism side of things at some point during my PhD. So I suppose, uh, I mean, if I had any reflections on, um, you know, other people going, trying to make sense of this stuff, um, I, what I'd say, um, just thinking about um, other colleagues, uh, other early career researchers, um, other PhD students that I'm now um, supervising and, 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 and talking to maybe people who, are, who I'm, not, I'm not supervising. I think it's important to maybe to make sure you're thinking for yourself, trying to think through these things. I think it's probably very easy to follow a, a kind of textbook definition and off the shelf um, um, philosophical um, uh, justification for, for your work. Just because it's one of those things which you're, you should, which you're told to write, you know, at some point in your PhD thesis, you're going to have to write um, something about philosophy. So, so you know, the easiest thing to do is to kind of take it off the shelf and and, and write about it like that. I would, um, you know, I'd, I'd I'd ask. I think it's a good idea to 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 avoid that and make sure you kind of think through things yourself. And in the same way, um, I think following um, your supervisor is probably um, not automatically the, the the best thing to do. I think making sure that um, you're not just following um, the, the the justifications just because your supervisor tells you it's the best thing to do as well. I think that's a that's an important thing to remember. Um, I think a lot of when you read about around the um, philosophical assumptions, um, a lot of it. It tends to, well, from from my perspective, I, I think a lot of it does tend to oversimplify the um, argument on the opposite side, you know. So, so creating straw person arguments of of um, other paradigms, I think, is quite common. I think um, um, actually wanting to question those and actually wanting to, you know, meet those people. Uh, for for example, if if you wanted to critique the way that uh, quantitative researchers think about things, you might read that in in a textbook, but it's then a good idea to to actually go and talk to someone who does quantitative methods and saying, does this represent you? Do, do you think you've found um, truth in your methods? Are you an objectivist? Um, mm-hmm. So I think actually meeting them and and, and going out of your way to um, to actually have conversations with um, with real people, as opposed to creating abstract caricatures, I think would be um, a, a really good way of breaking down these kind of imagined boundaries between people. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. 
And I think one of the things that uh, is probably kind of preventing people from engaging with critical realism is that how it's often represented in qualitative research textbooks and also articles, and especially in in the qualitative work that is done in sport, exercise and health, is often kind of that critical realism is something that is close to positivism. And it's uh, kind of what you already mentioned about ob- objectivism. And, and there is a truth that can be discovered. That's mm-hmm. kind of something that always comes across. So I, mm-hmm. I think one of those things that you already mentioned about talking to people, but also making sure that you read texts that are produced by Mm. scholars who are within these different approaches. So you're reading about critical realism through somebody's work who is actually working within that approach. Mm. Yeah. So, because I think for me as well, kind of, uh, uh, what what was a challenge as well was trying to figure out that because there are so many different representations and how it's taken up in, in qualitative research in sport, exercise and health is very much kind of that it's a form of positivism and mm-hmm. something that is kind of left that we shouldn't kind of it's it's so gone (laughs) by Mm, now that that it's like we have moved on and now the new thing is this qualitative Mm. paradigm yeah so ways of using language as well outdated outdated yeah yeah so i mean we might have somebody listening who never heard about critical realism so maybe you just want to say a few words about what what is this whole thing about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much there. I, I, well, I, I don't want to immediately set out by saying it's it's, it's too complicated because I, I really don't think uh, it is. And, and quite simply, critical realism um, for for me, well, if you if you take uh, the word realism, um, uh, realism is essentially the assumption there's a real world that exists which is outside of our knowledge. I think this is, this is a generally agreed assumption within, uh, within the, 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 the realist school of thought. So, um, so a nice simple example in, in the physical world might be that, um, the world is, is a globe shape, um, as, as, as far as we know anyway. I think that's, that's, that's a fairly, um, robust, knowledge claim to make but let, let, let's say that it is um a, the shape of a, a globe there was a time in human history where where everyone thought it was flat everyone assumed it was flat so people's knowledge of the world went from being flat to being a globe um over a, a couple of um um uh, hundred years or so um but the actual status of the world didn't change during that time. Okay, so it was it, it, it was actually a globe shape. It was actually round, um, whether we thought it was flat or not. So there's a separation between the way the world actually is, so the the, the real world and what we think of it, our knowledge of it. Um, so this is a kind of a, a, a basic assumption. It sounds quite common sense, and I think that's how most people. Um, uh, go about their, their, their daily lives. They, they, they assume there is a real world that exists. So it almost feels like it shouldn't need to be stated, but I suppose it does need to be stated if you, if you go, um, and, and look into the, to the, to 
the challenges of that. So it's actually quite difficult to to, to um, prove or confirm there's a real world that exists outside of our knowledge. But that's the basic thing. That's that's the basic realist assumption. Um, mm-hmm. So I suppose some people are happy to to um, to use the term realism, and, and increasingly uh, I'm comfortable using the, the term realism. But critical realism um, generally re- you know, hints at the idea that yes there is a world out there but we also need to be conscious that um, we can never fully know it we can never fully understand it all of our um, uh, ideas about that world are uh, dependent on uh, the the concepts and and theories that we have about it so we always have to kind of update things we're not we're not we, we don't live in absolute certainty about that real world so critical realism is uh, kind of sits nicely um, w- with with my understanding of that. Now, there's obviously lots of different um, versions of this, lots of different schools of, of thought. Um, but I, I suppose I began reading in the tradition of um, Roy Bascar and then developed by people like Margaret Archer, Andrew Sayer um, and, and authors like that. Um, and they um, they kind of joined uh, two words from from Bascar. There was a term, critical naturalism, um, and transcendental realism was a, was a different term. So it was a kind of combination of, of of those two terms, really. So not necessarily the, the way that I just described it, but I think mm-hmm. what the, the way that I've described it is, is, is probably I, I don't think many of you would would would, would necessarily disagree um, with, with that yeah. definition I provided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically what you are telling is that we had different ideas about what the world is like. At some point of time, mm-hmm. the pe- people thought that the earth is flat. Mm-hmm. But at some point, as we now know, that they were actually mistaken. So mm-hmm. our knowledge can refer to the world for better or worse. Sometimes we are wrong. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we are gathering more evidence that indicates that we might be right. Mm-hmm. But we can always gather more knowledge that will kind of show that actually we were wrong again. Yeah. So, so it's something that kind of keeps developing. So I think your example is something that is quite easy to understand to people, but what happens is when we move to qualitative research, it gets a bit more complicated, right? So can you, if I'm a physical activity researcher and working with qualitative methods, Let's say I'm doing interviews with people to figure out um, when they are doing exercise and why they're doing it and kind of understand motivational issues surrounding that. So how does that critical realist approach kind of inform what I'm doing? What what does it imply for my research? Yeah, well, I think there's um, the, the potential, the difficulty in, in, in things like this is it's never really... You can never be totally sure that you've understood what someone else is thinking, what someone else's experience is like, what it's like mm-hmm. to be that that person who's trying to exercise. Um, so obviously this is what we're trying to find out. If you interview someone and you might say, uh, let's say, for example, a common problem with, um, you, you might be interested in people who are obese and they're trying to get into exercise, their experience of exercise might be one which presents lots and lots of barriers that they, they may feel um, they may feel shame they may feel like they're physically unable they may feel pain in certain ways they may feel very self-conscious 
Um, so, but and they can tell us these things. We may, we may not be a hundred percent certain that what we've understood from what they've told us is exactly what they are experiencing. Um, mm-hmm. So, the the challenge that you that you usually get to in qualitative research is, is that if you have let's say two researchers and they are interviewing or doing some research on on this one participant um they may uh interpret what has been said uh in different ways so they may one of them may say um oh, that well they're, they're not they haven't engaged in their physical activity uh, this week they haven't engaged in the intervention um why is that and one person might might say well it's because you know they don't have the the right motivation or because they um you know their their attitude is wrong something like that and then the second researcher may interpret what they what they've said and said oh actually if you listen to what they've said they are they are trying um but um they they're they're experiencing this this shame or this stigma um or pain or something like this so the, so the, you may get two different interpretations of of the one uh, experience now the slippage for me in this qualitative paradigm is to take those two different interpretations and to treat them as um as as just different interpretations and they're both equally um valid and um they're both um there's no way of adjudicating between them because the researcher um, has has tried their best to interpret and understand the situation, um, and they've just come up with two different um, two different interpretations. Hmm. Um, and uh, for me, what um, thinking um, in the, the the realist sense is is to is to remember that the participants' experiences are the things that are real. They're the things that exist outside of the researchers. Uh, knowledge. Um, so if they disagree, if the interpretations are in are in disagreement, it's probably important to uh, you know at some point think that they are uh, they're either both um, uh, partial. Uh, one may have misrepresented, one may have misunderstood, one may have uh, got the situation totally wrong, um, one may have got it totally right, one may have got it partially right. Um, but there's there's something going on outside of these interpretations there's this external point of reference which is the actual experience of the of the participant um who um who we kind of we need to go back to we need to start questioning our experiences and move towards um uh uh, an, an attempt to represent the actual experiences of what's actually happened so essentially our qualitative data within this critical realist thinking is an attempt to uh, describe what's going on in the actual world, the real world, or uh, come up with a, a theory which attempts to represent um, something that's actually happening in the real world. So this is the kind of realist a- attempt. Um, and that mm-hmm. sounds quite, um, again, like a sort of straightforward common sense uh, e- example. I think in reality, a lot of people would probably do their um, qualitative research uh, uh, like this. But you get a sense in a lot of work within the qualitative paradigm that um, any adjudication between interpretations is um, uh, either an impossible task or it's um, it's too difficult to do or it's simply that, that there isn't anything outside of our, our own interpretation. So, so we might as well 
leave it there and just acknowledge that this is just one interpretation. For me, I think we need to be more um, rigorous and, and, and our ultimate goal is to get as close to that, um, uh, that, that actual real world experience as we can. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we are taking up in, uh, in the paper that we wrote together about validity in, in qualitative research. And the problem that if you are adhering to a relativist approach, it's very difficult to say why are you preferring your interpretation or your explanation over some over your co-researcher's interpretation or the interpretation of the participant. And we come to the kind of question like whose reality actually counts if if there are those multiple realities. So whose reality are we kind of writing up in the paper and whose reality is not going in like what what's the reason exactly exactly mm. and i think um yeah it was important to distinguish between uh, perhaps the way that people actually do things and the way that people actually um uh carry out their qualitative work versus the way that people talk about it because i think like, we don't want to get into a, a danger of creating these these straw person accounts of how other people yeah. uh, do things so as we said we're referring to the qualitative paradigm but we've also started touching on um this idea of of relativism and mm-hmm. um uh, constructivism and interpretivism which are somewhat uh, linked concepts um and you know one of the one of the dangers is 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 uh, maybe saying that that they treat all um accounts as equally valid and even though that that's something which um they may not do in in reality um it's certainly conceptually not part of the language and not certain, certainly not part of the tools which which are um prominent within the um qualitative paradigm as uh, the, you're not left with much to adjudicate between these different um these different interpretations whereas this realist thinking you know this assumption there is something outside of our interpretation that we're trying to get as close to it as as possible you know we're trying to uh, this is quite a straightforward simple um uh, concept of validity is something which is actually becomes quite um quite important and quite and quite useful in 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 uh in these sticking points mm-hmm. this podcast is sponsored by fibian Fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform. It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. And I think also one thing that we might want to touch upon is kind of the very fundamental, what's, what's the aim of qualitative research in the first place? So... Are we trying to describe people's experiences or are we trying to do something more? So what what would be the critical realist 
approach? What what are you trying to achieve if you're doing a qualitative study? Yeah, so I think that um, if you're trying to describe things, I think that's an important part of it. And for me, that's the kind of the bread and butter, the, the kind of basic um, things that, that most qualitative researchers would want to do. So if you um, if you do an interview with someone, you want to make sure that you are able to describe what they said to you, um, you know, accurately. Or if you uh, do an ethnography and you want to know what it's like to be in a particular community and you spend a lot of time with them, you want to actually be able to describe what it's like to be in that um, community. Um, and you could say the same with a with a whole bunch of different qualitative methods. But within the um, critical realist approach um you do want to do uh, more than that you do there's a big emphasis on explanation so not only describing what's going on but uh, beginning to generate some theories um which maybe don't need to be taken as kind of grand frameworks and grand theories but usually taken more as either middle range theories or explanations um, which help you explain why things are going on. So, for example, if you take um, uh, gender inequality or the gendered um, experience in sport, it, it's quite common that um, so it's a commonly held understanding that, that, that girls, young girls, may be um, persuaded not to do sport and physical activity in comparison to their um, to their male counterparts, to, to the boys in school, for example. Um, so you might want to, um, uh, if you if you were to do some qualitative research with boys and girls in school, you may want to describe how their experiences are are different, and they may, may be able to tell you on an individual level what their life is like. And, and the girl may tell you that she she doesn't feel. Um, comfortable in uh, in physical education, she doesn't feel um, uh, confident in uh, the after school club. Um, those sorts of things. She might be able to tell you her kind of lived experience of what it's like in spaces of physical activity. But then um, the the next step then is to go beyond that description and try and um, explain why she may be feeling uncomfortable or unconfident in those spaces so um, that is um, related to kind of causal explanations and it's usually a matter of uh, inference with, with things that you can't necessarily observe so this is where, where in critical realism um, they um, describe the world in different kind of domains and, and, and say there are things that are observable so if a, a girl who's, who's going to an after-school club explains um, and, and describes her experience as being one that she doesn't feel comfortable or confident. That's something which we can capture. But if you're wanting to, um, to say why she doesn't feel like that, it may be that we have to theorize beyond our empirical observations. We may have to, to, to make inferences outside of that. And that's really the, um, the, the most important, the kind of... Um, uh, most uh, celebrated aspect of um, of the research endeavor um, is, is attempting to, to to find these regularities and then trying to explain them. Now, of course, mm -hmm. as, we, as we've said before, our knowledge of them, because it won't necessarily be empirically based, may be um, a subject to interpretation. 
but it's important not to you don't just um, take that uh, interpretation and, and stop there. You have to continually question your interpretation, uh, seek new evidence, seek new um, data, and try and explain all the data um, in a way which uh, which which is helpful, and we can fully understand the um, the social the social situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think when you're putting it this way, what what seems quite different from qualitative research as it comes through from many textbooks is that there isn't a lot of emphasis on you as a researcher. So we are kind of taught to think about qualitative research as you are very much involved as a kind of person in creating the findings and it's your it's your construction and it's your reflexivity that needs to go in. So can mm. you tell me a bit how how you think about your role as a researcher when you're doing critical realist work? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because uh, I think it's it's important to acknowledge that that you know you will always play a role in the in the data that you produce um, as a person, but I think it is it may, perhaps it's just about levels of emphasis. But I, I tend to see my own role as something which which ultimately you know I, I would like to try and remove as much as possible. I'd like to think that. If someone else came into the and conducted the same study, if they had the same research question and they were trying to understand the experience of girls in school and, and, and trying to understand that, or understand uh, why um, certain overweight or obese uh, people are struggling to, to to get physically active, they are they are striving to find the experiences of those participants, and they and they. Um, if we've got it right, then someone else would find the same thing, and, and that's and that's another a useful way of thinking about it for me. It's another way of of helping to um, gain confidence in whether our, our findings are um, are more more or less valid than others or not. So for me, um, yes, you reflect, but I think um, the re- reflection is largely about untangling. Any problems with your involvement? Any um, and you know what is, I suppose, become a little bit of a, d- a dirty word within this qualitative paradigm, uh, which is bias. Um, and mm-hmm. I do think um, that is something which is sort of rejected because you can't. Um, you know, we're not attempting to remove our biases. But the you know because sometimes our personal involvement is precisely something which um, actually leads to really good, rich research you know because because we are maybe maybe we're invested in it or maybe um we can see things that other people can't this hypothetical other researcher to come in they may not see the same things so there's certainly value in bringing your own involvement in there but ultimately Mm -hmm. if you're aiming to um if you're working towards and here's the other uh uh contentious word which is truth if you're aiming to find the truth of um these uh, of the phenomena, then, um, then uh, uh, your own involvement is not something which is 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 important. So I think the danger in um, slipping towards uh, narcissism when when we are thinking around our own interpretation and our own value in producing research, we need to acknowledge it. But at the same time, um, it's not about us. Ultimately, it's it, the research is not about us as, as, as the researcher the, the research is about the phenomenon and the people that you're studying and the um the 
mechanisms and the and and, and the causes of, of the social problems that we see in the world and that needs mm-hmm. to be the most um important thing that we need to re- remind ourselves yeah and when you mentioned about what critical realism or re- uh, research that is drawing on critical realism so they're trying to produce explanations theoretical explanations of why things are happening the way they are happening and so with your theory you would then hope others to test the theory or refine the theory and see whether it helps us to understand what's going on so that would be something that is going on regardless of whether you as a person as a researcher are kind of studying it or not so it's not just your understanding of what's going on but it's an understanding that other researchers can kind of come to the same conclusions that's exactly right yeah and um i think it's it's um it's one of these things which becomes i'm not quite sure why but it becomes an assumption that this this idea of different perspectives being important and um and we always interpret things it is something which has has become on the side of um um uh what's the word maybe maybe you know innovative um thinkers people who are maybe more um open-minded maybe socially conscious people interested in in uh inequalities and social justice it's become part of that um of that uh lexicon that 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 language um but uh i think what's really interesting is that is that we've seen the we've seen that the same tools can be used um for people who um are not interested in um social justice fairness equality the very same um um you know as we're in the sort of post-truth era so-called um there are the perspective approach can be used by people in positions of power to actually um dismiss uh, interpretations and we see that within um you know feminist uh movements people arguing against feminism may say that look this is just your perspective you're coming at this from a, from a feminist perspective so 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 your your feminist um uh, views are, are not valued for me for me i think you need to be able to say that uh no that there there is you need to be the, the more confident you are and the, and the more you attempt to actually say that um Uh, patriarchy is something which is real for example g- gender pay inequality is is true these are quite helpful things which which are, have social justice goals and i think um those kind of truth claims are, are around them are actually quite useful so we've got a um very fun and interesting uh, election going on in the mm-hmm. uk i don't know if you've been following it but there was um Definitely, so yes. michael gove um is a senior conservative um uh, politician and um he was uh, a journalist asked him to defend um a claim recently uh, that the conservatives are making around building hospitals so that the, the claim was that the conservatives plan to build um or that are building 40 uh, new hospitals and then after some interrogation by journalists and other MPs it turns out that this is actually six new hospitals and then the, the number 40 refers to um seed funding investment for business plans for for 40 hospitals so it's quite a different statement to make that we're building 40 hospitals to we're um providing the seed funding for business plans for 40 
hospitals. Mm-hmm. But um, my point is that that when the uh, when Michael Gove, the um, conservative politician, was being confronted with this, his defence was, "Look, this question is a uh, liberal left wing question, mm-hmm. and your uh, viewers need to understand." And that that you're coming at this from a certain perspective. So uh, when when challenged on something which was um, shown to be, um, you know, a, a politician lying about something, um, his defence and one which can sometimes be quite convincing was this um, multiple truths, this perspectivalism, um, mm-hmm. which was which was used as a defence. Um, so. For me, this 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 is as an as, as an example of how um, ideas of truth or beliefs in truths um, are actually quite quite useful for um, maybe social justice goals and um, the way that the nature of uh, of things are. We need to make these these statements about the world and 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 not necessarily um, slip into the idea that there are multiple realities, multiple truths, and and everything is a matter. Of perspective, I think there's a there's a dark side to this, which which I think we're experiencing now. Yeah, and I think that also comes through when you look at qualitative research, and and there's a lot of talk about different paradigms, and different paradigms are producing different knowledge claims that need to be evaluated within the criteria of that paradigm. So basically, what you are arguing for is something that kind of applies within that paradigm but not necessarily the other and and this is a very confusing and complicated situation for qualitative researchers and for research community as a whole Mm. if if there is nothing that we can kind of generalize in terms of how to evaluate qualitative research that everything depends on how how the researchers are approaching the questions or their own paradigm. So that kind of means that if I'm in a different paradigm from where you are, then I cannot kind of evaluate the quality of your work. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can I, I, absolutely. I think I say because uh, ultimately, you know, as much as we can talk about multiple realities. Uh, between different people, I think it's important to mention that, that that maybe we have some different realities, you know, in terms of our own personal experience. But I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. I think we live in the same reality. I think we live in mm. the same physical reality. We live in the same conceptual uh, reality. We live in the same um, uh, society. And uh, when we need to, uh, the most important thing is that we usually work with the same participants or the same um, population that, that that we're talking about. So suddenly they are the the most important thing um, because they they uh, exist in the real world. So if two people from different paradigms have conflicting advice for those real people, then we're into a bit of um, a bit of trouble, I think. So yeah, be, being able to mm-hmm. um, you know if they give different advice, um, it's it's not necessarily an excellent solution just to be able to say, well, if you're a um, if you're a uh, if you're in the critical paradigm, then you should do this. But if you're in the relativist paradigm, you should do this. Um, you know, they're 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 not in a paradigm. They're in the real world, and they mm-hmm. want to, want to know whose advice to take. So I think um, yeah, we do have this situation where we're attempting to 
um, you know, increase the, the diversity of approaches. We're trying to acknowledge that different people do things in different ways, but it really has its limits, this explanation, and, and, it, and it gets into sticking points when we do try and give advice in the real world to practical people who, who, who don't care about our paradigms that, that, that we've invented. Um, and then also the, the, the other thing is when, oh, I suppose the other things are related to uh, peer reviewing. So if if people from two different paradigms or three different paradigms are reviewing uh, your study, it's very difficult for them to um, uh, f- f- for them to use their perspectives in order to um, to to judge the quality of it. And then the last issue would be for me, which is uh, which is quite important, is trying to do a synthesis of different studies. So if you're doing a, um, a meta study, uh, review, a, um, so yeah, a, a, a literature review, um, or, or some sort of synthesis of different studies, um, you have to have some way of making sense of, of different studies that are in different paradigms. Um, mm. and once we have understood that, and if you are able to, to make sense of it and reconcile it, then for me, that kind of shows that there's there's no need for different paradigms in the first place. If you're able to reconcile them um, when you're when you're kind of looking at multiple studies, um, you should easily be able to do it within one study as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's go into that in a moment. I guess one of the things that is worth mentioning here is that critical realists don't kind of assume that there is only one correct explanation right Mm -hmm. so when we are talking about there are competing interpretations and different different explanations so basically because of the constructivist epistemology that we never know exactly how the world it is as Mm -hmm. it is so we always have different theories and it might Mm -hmm. be that we have several theories that all can tell us something about the phenomenon that can actually be valid at the same time Mm -hmm. so I think that's one of the kind of accusations against critical realism sometimes. Mm. That kind of, that there would be this positivist assumption that there is one correct explanation mm. and everything else is wrong. Yeah, and I, when I've heard um, uh, critiques, I think I think sometimes it's related to um, the assumption that, that if you're a realist and you think you've found the answer that you think you you have the answer you think that you have somehow um um uh, achieved that full understanding of the real world but but actually as we said at the, at the beginning and you've just described there um that there's no arrogance associated associated with with this critical realist thinking because you just assume that it's there it's a kind of belief in truth not a not a, not a truth necessarily so mm. you, you you believe there's a truth to be found, and you you'll 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 attempt to um to to reach it, get close to it, as as much as possible, and that is your your key sort of drive. But yeah, but in order to do that, you have to come up with a nice clear explanation of what you think is happening, and then that needs to be exposed to critique. It needs to be exposed to um, people uh, disputing it. And people criticizing that and, and trying to see the flaws and see the problems 
in that sort of in that truth claim um and that's how you kind of make some make some progress so without doing that i think um i think you you don't necessarily move much much closer to um to 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 better knowledge so some interpretations are are better than others and and and, but at the same time you, you may not feel like you you have actually got there Mm-hmm. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity, and energy expenditure. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. So, I mean, you started mentioning about synthesizing different studies and kind of the possibility or impossibility of doing that. So, I mean, if you work from a realist perspective, how would you go about that? So, um, a, a a good way of of, of going about it is um, is is usually starting with um, coming up with um, candidate theories. So, so if if you have um, a particular explanation that you have in in your mind, you know what what you think is is going on. Um, this kind of begins as a, as a, as a candidate theory. So remember, theories become and explanations become the ultimate, uh, one of the ultimate goals of, of, of what you're trying to achieve. Um, and essentially what, what you're looking at, rather than trying to summarize what's, um, going on in the, in the literature, your attempt then is to seek evidence from the literature to try and either um support or refute or revise your um the, the the theory and the explanation that you've come up with so you begin with uh you know thinking becomes the most important thing okay thinking theorizing philosophizing trying to explain what's going on becomes the the the, the core undertaking and then literature is then used um uh, as evidence um selectively in the attempt to uh, attempt to, like, like I said, trying to um, improve and help you refine that theory. So that's where um, and we might be coming right back to the beginning now. That's where different um, methods, so qualitative and quantitative um, methods, actually become really useful because you're not beginning with the, the methods as part of your paradigm. What you're thinking with is the through the the theory, through the explanation that you've got in your head. And different um, types of methods can be really useful to you in helping um, refute those or helping you refine those theories. Hmm. So, are you involved in this kind of work at the moment, or something um, you're planning to do? Something that I am planning to do. Yes, we've begun a um, a realist uh, synthesis. So, if people wanted to um, look up further about these these methods, there's lots of um, excellent guidelines and descriptions out there um, by realist uh, researchers. So a recent book came out com- uh, called Doing uh, Realist Methods, uh, sorry, Doing Realist Research. Um, and um, that's quite useful. There's, um, I suppose, even before that, there's a project um, um, led by people like Justin Jagosh and um, uh, Jeff Wong um, called the Ramesses Project. So if you 
um, search for uh, Ramesses, you'll be able to find um, not only the, the development of realist synthesis and realist evaluation, but um, what's been developed as um, reporting standards. So not only how to do it, but how to do it well. You know, what, what are the publishing standards for uh, these sorts of methods? Um, so they are um, out there and they're, they're very accessible. Um, and yeah, I, I think increasingly being used um, in uh, social sciences in order to in order to do um, this this synthesis of work, but also evaluation work. Um, so shall I mention the realist evaluation work as well, then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so on that um, so just to slip from that realist um, synthesis to realist evaluation. So uh, evaluation um, is um, the uh, so developed by um, Pawson and Tilly, and perhaps more more taken on a little bit more by by Ray Pawson um, as a way of uh, a method for evaluating um, real world interventions, real world programs, um, and and I think really coming from a critique from uh, of randomised control trials. So this is an idea of where maybe you want you've got a a new way of doing things a new uh intervention in the in the real world um you might want to put uh cctv cameras up in a school in to to reduce um um you know reduce uh, vandalism or something like that um and you might want to see how well that that works um and uh so a randomized controlled trial might have 10 schools where they put CCTV cameras up and 10 schools that don't put CCTV cameras up and then see whether you reduce um, vandalism. Um, and you may conclude from that that putting CCTV cameras up do actually reduce vandalism in these schools where it, um, on average, uh, it reduced vandalism. So the assumption then is that what you can do is you can then generalise that finding and you can assume that the CCTV cameras actually have uh, an impact and, and they actually have this causal power to reduce vandalism in schools. Um, but that and many other different programs interventions come under a bit of trouble when you try and put that into a new school and a new context and it doesn't work quite the same way. And maybe it doesn't um, work for everyone in exactly the same way. And maybe you can't average out all the different schools because they, it, it, the extent to which it worked was quite different. So the mantra for realist evaluation is not, um, does this work or not? Um, you know, uh, ultimately coming to a, a, a p-value and, and being able to claim significance. Um, the ultimate aim is to say um, uh, what works for whom, in what circumstances and how. So it becomes a little mm-hmm. bit more complicated, but but what that does is it is it says that well actually you know it's not going to work for everyone, so we need to find out you know in what different groups, what different people, what different schools is this going to work, um, and um, is there something within the context which works with the CCTV cameras? So maybe something the context might be the teachers who are there, the particular socio demographic. Um, population of the schools, the recent history of the schools. You know, there's something in that context which combines with 
the um, CCTV cameras as a as a mechanism. So it's not the CCTV keep CCTV cameras on their own. It's the context mm-hmm. with the with the cameras and they help to produce the um the outcome so it's a it's a refined version of um of a a way to evaluate how interventions work in the real world and i think this would be really really interesting to see this more in physical activity research which as far as i can see seems to be dominated by interventions which are um, evaluated using um, RCTs, and, and, and usually they are, um, uh, you know, it comes to a kind of bottom line conclusion whether this intervention worked or not. You know, does it work in this school? Does it work in this um, population? Does it work in um, in this neighbourhood? Something like that. And the attempt is to to, to try and isolate the. Um, the causal force of this brand new intervention and whether it works or not, when actually it may be more appropriate to say that this intervention works for some people um, and some people in in this particular context, and it's partly this context which makes it work or not, and we can help to maybe try and explain why it works. Because I guess that last thing is, um, you know, why it works is is coming back to this causal explanation idea. Because there are many, many um, experimental methodologies, which, which, um, um, uh, sorry, many experimental studies, which come to a conclusion about whether something's worked or not, and mm-hmm. people don't actually know why. So it's either it has worked, and but they're not really sure why it worked, or it hasn't yeah. worked, and they're not mm-hmm. really sure sure why. And that is a, a really, really crucial but missing component of um, experimental studies. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit too um, harsh now because some can be quite useful. And if you've got a well-developed theory um, uh, in medicine, for example, and you've done lots of basic science in order to, to, to have this well-developed theory, then you can implement it. And, and maybe if it's in a population where, where you know, the biological organism is quite uh, is, is, is very similar within a, a species, maybe it's going to work. But in the social sciences, you know, we know that context can be very different. We know that history plays a role. We know that, you know, that time plays a role and we need to have uh, methods which help reflect that more open system and we need to be able to understand why things are working and and perhaps why they're not as well yeah so what you are telling is that there might be some more work to do in terms of when you're asking questions for whom why and looking at the context as well but it also means some work for qualitative researchers because they are often uh, the experts in figuring out people's intentions people's intentions and and all these mechanisms that are underpinning that might not if you're just measuring whether the change happened or not you don't really know uh, how the people in this environment interpret what's going on and 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 why they were doing what they did for example when we talk about behavior change yeah yeah exactly i think it is good news for qualitative researchers and qualitative research itself i think um uh process evaluations are being used um in randomized control trials a lot more often but also more than that it's not just the process evaluation it's also trying to understand um like you said what's going on what what are these people's experiences what are their um motivations what are the, what how what does this intervention mean to them and these are all things that qualitative research does very well it's, um, it's 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 very good at 
you know, ultimately trying to um, um, understand the experience of other humans. This is something that humans are very good at doing. So, so, so people do this much better than uh, machines do at the moment. But machines can hold lots of data and lots of information better than we can. Um, but mm. we're very good at understanding uh, each other. Um, so I think this is where qualitative research really comes into its own. And, and I think seeing this stuff more in um, research grants and, and, and large studies is certainly a good sign for qualitative researchers. Yeah, definitely. And and what was mentioned about mixed methods or quantitative and qualitative, what we talked about in the beginning, that within critical realism, you can use them both or you're encouraged to use all the methods that you can to figure mm -hmm. out what's going on. So it's fine to use those surveys. It's fine to yeah. use your observations, <laughs> interventions, use whatever you can to figure out what you need to know. Exactly. So um, methodological pluralism is a term that's used quite often within the mm -hmm. realist evaluation and realist evaluation and realist synthesis, um, but also yeah within within critical realist work as well. Mm. So we're trying to add to a pool of theory. We're trying to explain things, and I think it also reflects the the the, the nature of the world. So there are things which you know can be counted. You know, there are, there mm. are there, there may be a number of different people who have this experience out of a hundred, for example, um, and it might be good to know whether this one person or there's 99 people who are ex having this particular experience. Um, but then beyond that, within each person, they they may have a, a, an experience which is maybe very very mild. Very you know, they maybe feel uh, if they're quite uh, low mood, for example, um, it might be very mild um but on uh, they also might might have an experience which is very very extreme very very intense um sadness depression something like that for example the, the idea that you can have different intensities of of the same kind of experience mm -hmm. is surely something which um which, which says that 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 uh, quantitative methods may be quite useful in that um that might be helpful to show a different intensity or amplitude of, of an experience so the nature of the world it, it, there are some things which can be uh, counted um measured and whether we do it that accurately or not um is another question but there, well, i think there's a, there's a sense there but then of course yeah like like you said there's um there's also things that that are not so easily measured there are different types and different forms of things that that are um which we describe as um uh which, which we can describe qualitatively much more effectively mm -hmm. um so to and me you know you need to bring all these things together into to, to, to understand um the the world in its full complexity and, and not entirely dismiss one because they're in a different paradigm view yeah yeah and when you mentioned about open systems and sometimes we will find something that takes us by surprise that we mm. couldn't anticipate so we had if we have our our surveys for example we might not figure out to ask about something but then as as qualitative researchers we are also more open ended and we kind of we can discover things that were not a part of our uh, theory in the beginning so that's also a benefit of kind of combining the methods exactly yeah and, and i think we've all had that experience when we're trying to fill out surveys and, and questionnaires where you 
as a participant, you try and give an answer, but you think, well, mm. actually, it's not that simple. Or you may want to say it depends or, you know, from time to time. And those sorts of things aren't very uh, you can't really capture that in a in a survey um, very well. Yeah. So it's certainly there's value there. But being able to develop it and being able to work within that, that open system, which is always uh, changing over time, um, uh, I think is really important. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This has been really great. Let's finish up in a moment. I think okay. I'd like to have a little reflection on kind of the practicalities when you're doing this work and when you're uh, kind of presenting it to people and you're submitting a paper to be reviewed and eventually hopefully published. So, I mean, one of the issues that comes across is that the terminology, you already talked about the bad words, so truth. Mm. Uh, qualitative researchers might not like the term validity mm. or accuracy or causality is one of those horrible mm. words as well that you're not mm. supposed to use. And uh, I've sometimes had a reviewer kind of picking up on those those things that, for example, if I talk about accurate mm. interpretation, and, and that's something that is kind of flagged that my terminology is wrong in a sense. Mm. So so I wonder if you you had those experiences and, and kind of how to go about that when you're the, your discussion partner might be within a different framework. Yeah, well, I suppose the, the first thing to say, as as you and I uh, both know, having gone through this process together in submitting papers from from this perspective, is that um, well, you know, I don't. I, I'll try and answer this, but I don't necessarily have the answers because I've kind of mm. uh, re- rejected on, on 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 occasions, and you end up maybe getting into an argument with someone from a different perspective um uh when you know ideally you wouldn't get into that argument or that you know the argument is is resolvable um it's okay to have arguments obviously um, if you want to dispute things but if, if you're able to work towards um resolving things um uh, that, that that's the ideal situation you know if you can defend it properly and if you can justify it and then a, a reviewer accepts your um justification um or you know provide some 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 useful uh, constructive feedback uh, then that then that is the, the the ultimate goal i suppose but have not in, having not always reached that conclusion I, I suppose um i think there's a positive to be said in that there are lots of people doing realist research uh, critical realist research um in fact like, like i said at the um earlier i think this is often people's common assumption um and the common way of of, of a common sense way of, of, of going through the world is one where um it's uh, you, you you may assume there's an external reality but your knowledge of it is slightly um it, it is 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 context uh, and, and concept dependent so um i i do think people um do accept this and there are lots lots of people who work under these assumptions either implicitly or explicitly so i think there are other people out there so it's not like it's um it, it's difficult to do um I, I remember once writing a um a grant application a, a proposal for um for a study where i was I, I it was supposed to be a realist evaluation uh, methodology and i was very defensive about it i kind of went i, I was assuming that that it might 
come to some either someone who um, is more used to randomized controlled trials on the one hand or someone who comes from a very qualitative paradigm on the other hand so i was very defensive in it and actually one of the reviews came back and said no this is this is actually a very well established method lots of people do this so you don't need to be so defensive so actually mm. i think sometimes there's um there's the, just because um there's some people who are critical of it and, and don't like these words truth accuracy validity cause there are lots of other people who and, and probably a growing community Mm-hmm. Um, who who are familiar and happy to to use this uh, use this language? Um, so I, th- I I suspect that um, like most uh, shifts, uh, most movements in and trends in science, it takes a, a while to convince people um, one way or another. Um, so you know there there are uh, I, I suspect that there there it, it will maybe. Take some time in order to, um, to to get enough people out there who are versed in realism, critical realist methods, um, in order for journal editors to be able to to, to send a review, to send it out to review to, to someone who's familiar with this. So um, they're not so um, I don't object to it so so quickly. Mm-hmm. But but I think for me, um, one of talking more um, pessimistically might be. Um, one thing I think stops different movements from happening and different uh, arguments from um, taking place is actually the the general um, paradigmatic approach, which I, I think we've, we've, we've touched on. But um, when I say paradigmatic approach, I mean um, an, uh, an approach to the field of um, academia in which in which there are different um, paradigms which are incommensurable. So um, if, if you take the assumption that, let's say, a PhD student or early career researcher needs to find one of these paradigms and then spend mm. the rest of their career working within that paradigm and then only having a conversation within people in that paradigm, mm-hmm. um, that's one way of doing things. And, and that paradigm is, is um, protected from critique from people in a different paradigm so this is a kind of paradigmatic approach where where people kind of agree to disagree and they go their separate ways and they use um, a a language which is familiar to them and assumptions which are familiar to them and um, importantly they're they're not exposed to critique from other paradigms i think for me that is um, potentially a something which which would 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 prevent some um what it what it does is it prevents the very idea that that better approaches can can be developed so the the idea of um you know advancing or progressing science and knowledge rests in the idea that you know one theory could be replaced by a different theory it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be a perfect theory but it can be replaced because it uh, maybe matches with the more data than um, than the previous theory, or that it helps ex- explain things more coherently than the previous theory. There's less kind of an anomalies within that theory. Um, so the idea that you can um, shift from one um, theory to another based on it being, you know, actually a little bit better um, is kind of 
blocked by this paradigms approach because it, mm-hmm. if you if you work towards it, let's say we, we, if we were working in this critical realist paradigm now we simply would just work with other people who who agree with us and mm-hmm. never um never meet anyone else from any other paradigm and we only evaluate things w- within our own um within our own um paradigm so for me that that, that that's a problem because not, not only well for, for one it prevents anyone else from critiquing us really um mm-hmm. and w- w- which is a problem and it prevents um uh, us from being able to critique anyone else so i think being able to um uh being able to actually engage in rational discussions where we are actually attempting to uh point out where there are uh, mistakes errors um issues which of of coherence and compatibility which, which could be refined um, I think that gets blocked by a paradigms approach, and, uh, and I think that's something that we've probably experienced uh, in the past. You know, is it any attempt to do something which you maybe see as um, as um, um, I, yeah, I, I'm trying to not to use the word more uh, advanced, but 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 mm. but that, that, that's, that's kind of where I'm going. I'm, 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 so something which which helps explain reality a little bit better than previously. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's something which gets gets blocked by saying, look, that's just your perspective and this is my perspective and we're all just working in different paradigms and um, we, we can't critique each other. I, I think that's actually a, a problem for developing developing a methodology. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying and kind of the emphasis of kind of positioning your work and positioning yourself that kind of if we are emphasizing that too much, that might actually be harmful for kind of developing our understanding and kind of trying to figure out how we are wrong mm, yeah <laughs> and 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 looking outside that that we shouldn't emphasize too much that you have to figure out where you are and that's that's it in in terms of the paradigms yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah it's, um it's oh, sometimes it's described it, it almost feels like you're trying to make a choice between you know what's your favorite flavor of ice cream or something yeah, you know, and 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 there's no, it's not there's, one's not better than another. Um, you know, you just it's just your personal preference, and you may identify with, um, with a particular position and see yourself in a certain way, um, mm. or maybe like a style of music where it will have something strongly with with your own identity. Um, but actually, I think it's important to, you know, <laughs> to not think like that because you know it 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 it. it it probably isn't. Is it? These are just some methods, and what's important is what's happening um, in the in the real world. And, uh, and and we need to happily discard any of our methods if they are if they're causing problems and if there are um, if there are holes in the arguments. So I think mm-hmm. yes, it's it's it's. And I'm not saying that um, realism, critical realism, is is perfect. But for me, I think I it explains uh it has maybe less holes in it than other approaches and um i think it's it's something which i will continue to use and continue to listen to people who criticize it and hopefully they can advance my own my own understanding of it and advance the field of it if they can see um if they can see some uh, uh, mistakes and problems in it and that's how we uh, progress as a as a as a community yeah. So 
that's something that when you mentioned the critical realism has been out there for for quite a while already, but we don't have it so much when we talk about physical activity research and sport and exercise research. So I really hope that you continue developing your work and and that others will be kind of bringing this approach in as well so that so that people can then kind of evaluate whether that's something that might be one way of kind of moving our discipline forward and helping us do better work. And you too, Nora. Mm. So thanks so much for your time. I think we covered a lot of different things and, and I hope that this is interesting and in some ways useful to our listeners as well. So let's finish up for today. Thanks so Hi. much, Gareth. Thank you very much. Pleasure. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.